This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. However strange or however esoteric and however specific to you, your own wilder feelings might appear, nevertheless, my own faith and my own wager is that these are always held in common with other people. Hello, I'm Emily Berry, editor of the Poetry Review, and today I'm going to be talking with the poet Denise Riley, whose poems, How Does Anyone Get Over These Things, and Another Agony in the Garden, appear in the spring 2019 issue of the Poetry Review. I'm really excited to be talking to Denise, who I had the privilege to work with over several years. She was my PhD supervisor. So we've had a number of discussions, but usually about my own work, so I'm looking forward to turning the tables a bit this time. Denise Riley is a poet and philosopher whose poetry collections include Say Something Back, Marxism for Infants, and Mop Mop, Georgette, New and Selected Poems. She's been twice published in the Penguin Modern Poets series and is also the author of numerous works of non-fiction, including the essay Time Lived Without Its Flow. Her latest collection, Say Something Back, was shortlisted for numerous international prizes and she won the Ford Prize for Best Single Poem in 2012. So there we are. Denise, I thought we could start with a poem. Um, would you be mm-hmm. able to read Another mm-hmm. Agony in the Garden? I us? can indeed. Thank you. Another Agony in the Garden. The harshness in a human face adores its closeness to the bone. It glories in refusing to yield. It patrols its own numbed attitude, sealed off from another's despair, to guard its air of being strong. A fox that strolls in broad daylight has something shameful to disown, a half-buried relic he scraped up, worried at, gingerly chewed his hours of seclusion to gnaw it clean, compelled to be overlong. A child who knows its love repulsed steadies to bed itself in stone, then will get even more despised for lacking improper gratitude. Convinced it is to blame for not being kindly ushered in among the good, its feelings wordless, more of a subdued animal moan at a gleam of slim aquamarine rivulets snaking by a painted wood. The goods, snap verdict, must move on, is inexperienced and wrong. An ear that's cocked in sympathy with the rock-bound solitaries groan and attuned to two rasping egrets, comedians of divine fortitude, still hears its own self as isolated, guaranteeing that it won't be long. You knew how to pick them all right, tease the friends who aren't alone. I never picked anyone, felt lucky to get auditioned or even viewed. Am I, thanks to that feeling, a source of a darkness my best efforts prolong. The moth that trembles in the night blunders around to find her clone. Her tiny, shuddering engagements will chafe away to powdery solitude. Discarded persons pummel their exasperating shame-blame sing-song. Thank you very much. That's wonderful. 
I heard from a spy who heard you read recently that you had introduced the poem by noting that the title relates to the title of a painting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I found it sort of interesting because I had read it as somehow sort of particularly English, maybe sort of irony about suffering, slightly humorous, positioning suffering as sort of slightly absurd. Not only there's an agony in the garden, there's another agony in the garden. And it's always really interesting to find out that there's other sources that you, as the reader, don't know. Well, you're right that there's meant to be some humour in the, in the title The Agony in the Garden, the painting was by Mantegna, the Italian painter, and his painting of the very common Renaissance theme of Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane was painted around, I think, 1458, 1460, and it happened to be showing in London at an exhibition in the National Gallery, and I do have a habit of preying on or feeding off, so to speak, paintings that I've seen recently. But there's also a a kind of running, slightly self-satirising set of meditations or queries about how you might incorporate forms of difficulty or forms of happiness into poetry in a lightly ironic and not too self-regarding manner. Just coming back to the painting for a moment, details in the piece that I've just read, like the gleam of slim aquamarine rivulet snaking by a painted wood and the figure of the rock-bound solitary, that is a figure of Christ, you know, knowing that he's going to be crucified and almost having last-minute thoughts about about whether this self-sacrifice was a prudent route to have taken. And then the two rasping egrets are two tiny white egrets who are plashing around in the stream that runs through the bottom of the painting in supreme indifference to the the main dramatic dramatic narrative. Yeah, like a sort of the Icarus painting. Exactly, exactly like that. The truth of it is that it's a thoroughly perverse exercise in a monotonous and completely irrational rhyme scheme. As you know, it goes in groups of three, rhyming triplets, so to speak, throughout, and the vowel sounds at the end are all, they're all identical within their triplets. So it's on, yud, ong, on, yud, ong, all the way down and there is no virtue in that there's no literary reason for that I think it was simply me knowing that I had to respond to your invitation to write something and thinking okay I always think there's something completely impersonal and almost indifferent to the intentions of the writer about the work of producing a poem and so I'm always quite interested in trying to find ways of giving the poem its head and giving the poem its own lead, you can set out with some idiotically arbitrary scheme. And this really is far-fetched in its own idiocy. I mean, there's no reason for ong, own, ood all the way through. And it also makes a poem that would be impossible to translate into another language. I mean, you, know, you couldn't do it. At least I don't think you could. In the midst of your 
scheme of idiotically mechanised device, which is completely arbitrary and nothing to do with meaning or thought or emotion, once you've set up, so to speak, the edge pieces of your own jigsaw, then nevertheless you find that the middle starts slowly filling itself in with words that somehow have come around to voicing your own preoccupations, whether or not you meant them to do that. Wow, that's really interesting. You said something about the impulse of the writer being indifferent. I think I was trying to say that that the writer can start a poem using some indifferent scheme, meaning a formal scheme that has got sweet F.A. to do with the writer's hopes and intentions and yeah. compulsions. But then against but your then, better, it sort of creeps in. You know, it sees a vacuum somehow and it swells up yeah. to, to <laughs> fill it. And I think that's what, I that's what happened here. If the actual sounds aren't so arbitrary or after all, like there's some, some sort of subconscious reason behind choosing I mean they're quite sort of plaintive sounds I guess no you're right moan disown stone groan alone (laughs) solitude clone no you're, you're you're absolutely right that they are I also wanted to ask you about the double spacing. We had a mm-hmm. sort of exchange about that when yeah. it was being typeset and the spaces between the lines were quite important to you. We're actually starting a new online series called In Front of the Poem where we invite a contributor to do a sort of close reading of a poem in the issue. And Catherine Towers has written a, a very interesting close reading of another agony in the garden. She commented on this double spacing and she compared it to... When students write essays, they often are asked to leave at double spaces sort of so that the teacher can write in little comments or whatever. <laughs> she says, is there space for a countering voice between the lines? She also imagined it as a space for sort of an echo, which I thought was very interesting. I think that's very, very delightful, the idea of red biro corrections <laughs> between the lines. I, I would love to love to see that done. Um, no, there wasn't any any very highfalutin reason for it only that it's dense and it simply seemed to me to look more legible almost more reader-friendly so to speak if it had enough air between it it's rather thick lines to take a breath that that was all I think you use double spacing between lines quite a bit and say something back and I've noticed it's Mm. a, a form that does seem to crop up a bit where there's writing about grief or difficult subjects, I've used it myself. It made me think of your title in the epigraph from W.S. Graham, but you do say something back which I hear by the way I speak to you. I really like the idea that what you're putting out there is also a listening device, so these spaces could also be like a space for a response. Whether it's a yabu response or, <laughs> <Yeah>. or, or a, <laughs> a sympathetic intake of breath and sympathy. Well, hmm. well, you and I have talked before about some of the paradoxes of being a writer and the conflict between wanting to remain unexposed and yet sort of nonetheless yeah. feeling oneself compelled to write and put out work. I was rereading this fascinating paper of yours on lyric shame 
my understanding is that it talks about the idea that shame is intimately bound up with the lyric because of an, a misunderstanding about the relationship between the writer and their work. I think what you were saying about the tension between exposure and the wish to not be seen at all, it's, it's a very strong tension. It's a, a tension which seems to be held especially sharply by the lyric, including the mm. performed lyric. That ties up with my ponderings about what people mean by confessional literature, especially in poetry. And it has to be said, especially in poetry where the authors are women. I don't think I've seen a separate discussion about the masculine confessional, as it were, although yeah. you could indeed have... That might be an interesting... It, it might indeed be a genre <laughs> that we could quite rapidly fill with, with, <laughs> with examples. I've been trying to write a bit about what it is to confess the assumption that there is something to be forgiven for, which, of course, comes back to the question of shame, is how you might be able to write a literature which would be, from one point of view, confessional, yet it would do that without being too self-consciously tear-stained or too self-consciously embarrassed. And how you could take a private person's confession into the broader air of a public set of admissions which didn't claim any distinction or particularity. I mean, I've always gone by the conviction that however strange or however esoteric and however specific to you, your own wilder feelings might appear, nevertheless, my own faith and my own wager is that these are always held in common with other people, which is why that feeling of relief, which sometimes a lyric poem can enable, is always welcome. The relief that here in print is a witness to the fact that wilder feelings are entertained by everybody. Well, that's the hope, isn't it? That's that... that's that's the hope. But I think it's a, or at least that I'm bound to think that it's a soundly based hope. That was behind my hesitant impulse, so to speak, to publish "Time Lived Without Its Flow." That the very bizarre experience after the death of somebody you're close to, of as in the cliche, time stopping actually extending itself to a very, very sharp and very crystalline, vivid feeling that not so much time has stopped, but that you've been lifted into a region of no time at all. So I wanted to take the risk of putting that on paper in the hope or in the expectation and belief, actually, that other people would have had this feeling which is so resistant to any narrative description. So it's almost like the idea that other people will respond 
and feel recognized or recognize feelings or experiences is like a payoff for the discomfort for the self-exposure yeah if self-exposure reluctant self-exposure results in a feeling of recognition for many many other selves and what that does for you as a writer is to calm down and diminish your own reluctant embarrassment because as your wager had it these are after all common feelings and nothing human really is strange to any of us i was thinking reading through both your poems again that there's something in both poems mm -hmm. about faces and what they conceal and how does anyone get over these things the final line is the old shames rouge a thinly buffered skin below which there is yowling another agony then opens and because that it follows it's almost as if it's following on the harshness in a human face adores its closeness to the bone mm -hmm. it glories in refusing to yield it made me think of something I often think about which is sort of how much humans conceal from each other someone could be suffering terribly inside but they look cool as a cucumber on the outside mm -hmm. um it made me think of your comment that appears in on lyric shame the idea that if there's something that you're not able to speak about writing is a way of still remaining silent but yet opening up in some way yes and what I've been trying to do recently and in the couple of poems that we're talking about now is to find a technique which may or may not be a technique of concealment in a way that I'd rather like it to be, as well as a technique of exposure, which is an attempt to quote word for word painful utterances that have annoyingly stuck in my head down the decades and see if I can diffuse them for myself by incorporating them without a great deal of explanation and certainly without stories, names, accusations or the narrative elements of an angry memoir. And I'm beginning to think it might work. You can slip in snatches of hostile or angry speech or whatever it is that has irritatingly lodged itself in you down the years. You can slip it in to a poem not attributing it to anything or anyone, but because it's somehow, it's caught in black and white, then maybe it's finally flown out of your own head to settle and then be slammed shut within the pages of poetry <laughs> review like a mosquito being slapped by a book. Yeah. <laughs> and all there is is a sort of squash fly, black and white trace. So maybe that's what the wide spaces between the lines are, are for. Yeah. For a little angry insect blood to <laughs> appear there. That's perfect. Yeah. So it becomes like a, a spell or a... Yes. A spell for um, dispelling. A spell for dispelling. Now that, that's brilliant. But a spell which will also lose its vitality, or it will lose, it will lose its power to hurt because it's rendered in a relatively impersonal 
manner on the page. So it becomes a kind of secretive confession. <laughs> <laughs> so I shouldn't have mentioned any of this now, really. <laughs> I find it very helpful, hopeful and helpful mm. to think that because I am often unsure whether writing really does console as we've talked about as mm-hmm. well in the past and mm-hmm. thinking of it in that way it does seem as if it's very useful and more than consoling sort of actively involved in I don't know how you'd describe it it can make it other people's for them to use and elaborate or distort or trash I was interested also in asking you about your use of pastoral imagery flowers verdant scenes natural imagery kind of crops up a lot in your work how does anyone get over these things yes. it begins with a really quite sort of gorgeous description of an overgrown country lane pale honeysuckles slopping over the lane furred clematis buds arched from streaked wood which then develops into something sort of darker that sort of quite luscious imagery still for me holds of something charming are you always attracted to that sort of scenery I mean what's it all about yes it's 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 tricky isn't it shall I read it through so yeah maybe now would be a good moment to hear how does anyone get over these things a light thought of dog roses with pale honeysuckles slopping over the lane furred clematis buds arched from streaked wood arrowy leaves serried to point the walker's way coiled round in bindweed wreaths to crown her that glowing rinds distant beloved as she composed if mildly mutinous sinks beneath its waters at least no man in his car will ever again instruct her you can say goodbye to the children i've planned this accident so you will die not me not them just you I'm driving straight across this oncoming lane. Can I subdue a lurid, sadly factual past that keeps searing me through with my blame? Might I be less bumbling in my backflips from she to I, done in a belief that I is often transpersonal could i turn nonchalant cool as a peremptory gaze from some noble cause model online but wistfulness is a sweetener to bloom in shade is pure belladonna so was it kirkar 1799 when she was a damp Beloved, dusk packed it in long since. The old shame's rouge, a thinly buffered skin, below which there is yowling. I mean, as you saw, it's set up in a rather sardonic fashion here because the whole thing is a sort of meditation on romanticism and the love of the distant beloved who has to be kept distant or or else you know maybe crushed or drowned on closer acquaintance it's not natural imagery in any straightforward way it's a self-consciously 19th century literary imagery and at the back of it was a thought of the romantic 
authors, poets like Novalis or von Hardenberg, Hölderlin, where the thought or the actuality of their deaths or the deaths of the young women they fell in love with or mutual suicide pacts and so on were hovering like dark exhalations from that very landscape. For example, in the line, but wistfulness is a sweetener to bloom in shade, is pure belladonna. Belladonna, which of course is belladonna, the beautiful woman. Belladonna, the plant which is poisonous, which was used to produce drops that dilated the pupils of women's eyes to make them more ravishing to contemplate. It's funny that despite the sort of darker stuff that follows that I just got very hooked on this opening, just was just so like gorgeous, I suppose. And I I guess that's the problem with romanticism. (laughs) Or for the contemporary reader of romanticism or you know, what we could call pastoral literature in general. It's a lasting, seductive appeal of that gorgeousness which you want to draw in and accommodate in your own writing and yet somehow persuade it to interlace itself with harsher factual matters as well in a way that there is there's a very factual quote in in the middle of of this piece but it's contained there the mosquito trapped in the pages yes yes (laughs) well could we just finish with one final question quite a general question about how you sort of got into poetry I sort of like to ask people that (laughs) (laughs) I know how poetry got into you um I didn't come from a background where that was likely or would have been encouraged at all but somehow and you know god knows why it was something that i was drawn to as a very small child and my only access to it would have been to hymn books at church on sundays and I think I've been left with a permanent kind of reluctant interest in the 19th century strongly cadenced hymns and their much harsher and livelier counterpart in Scots border ballads of a much earlier epochs. There's maybe a sort of sense of that on a very sort of subtle level in the poems a biblical undercurrent or something that that was actually picked up on by Catherine Towers Mm. in her piece. Did you actively seek out then to read poetry as you got older? I always wrote it, of course, in secret from a very young age. And, of course, it has the overarching merit of being the cheapest form of art practice imaginable. So there is an awful lot of writing on buses going to and from picking up children on the backs of envelopes. And I think that was the only reason why I ended up with writing poetry rather than 
I don't know, photography or painting or architecture or whatever. Can't really make a sculpture on the bus. You can't make a sculpture on the bus. (laughs) Well, it's been really wonderful to talk to you in this more (laughs) formalised manner. (laughs) Thank you very much for reading your poems and for all your wonderful comments. Well, as my favourite writer Tristan Zara always used to say, thought is made in the mouth. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.